Well, it's just good to be together around the Word of God. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis. We began with the first verse last week, and uh, this morning we'll deal with the second verse. Should take it? No. We're actually going to go verses uh, 2 through 25. At that rate, it would take us a while to get through this book, but uh, we'll look at uh, 2 through 25 this morning. I'm going to read it right from the beginning of the chapter just for context. So would you join me in your Bibles, uh, Church Bibles, page 1. Page 1, if you're using the church Bible. Shouldn't have a hard time finding Genesis. Let's uh, give attention to God's Word as it is read. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth, was out with, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the day, called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. There was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed according to to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which their seed is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them... and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. This is the word of God. Would you uh, join me in a prayer as we ask for help from the Lord? this time. Father in heaven, our prayer is that you would 
use this time of proclamation to grip our hearts with the truth of your word. And we know that uh, I can't accomplish anything of, of eternal or lasting value. So, Lord, you're going you're to need to do the work in our hearts as only your spirit can when your word is proclaimed. And so we ask for that. Lord, all of us in the room need to hear from you because that is our daily bread. We live by every word that comes from your mouth, not in bread alone. And every word is living and active, and it's sharper than a double-edged sword. And we know that it will pierce to our very, uh, the core of our beings to divide joints and marrow, soul and spirit, and that your word discerns thoughts and attitudes in our hearts. So Lord, we pray that indeed you would do that work of heart surgery on us now. Help me speak. Help all of us listen for your voice. And may Christ be glorified among us. And it's in his name we pray it. Amen. Uh, if it was in my power to do it, and because I love my wife, I, I would like to take Kathy on a tropical vacation to some place by the ocean where the water temperature is above 80 degrees, where the beach is pure white. There would be no sharks or jellyfish or algae plumes. The hotel would be nicely appointed and new. Room service and beachside food service would be included for a modest price. The climate would be pleasant with air temperature hovering in the mid-80s and there would be no possibility of sunburn. That would be the ideal vacation for her. And if I prepared enough, if I had the resources, I could only do some of that because there are things that are certainly outside of human control. And we agree on that. Before creation, God had it in mind to have a people for his own, to provide an ideal place for them to dwell with him and to show them his everlasting covenant love. And that's really the story of the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And Genesis is the beginning of the beginning of that story. That's chapter 1, verse 1, is the beginning of the beginning of the beginning of that story. Well, verses 2 through 25 is really the next phase in that story. It's the beginning of the story of God setting apart a people to himself. But as we look at that beginning, we have to do that with the end in mind. The end of the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy, ends as the Israelites are just about to enter Canaan, the place that God promised to give to them. Why are they there? Why are the Israelites on the border of Canaan? Why are they ready to cross over the Jordan? Why are, what are they looking to possess? Well, a land flowing with milk and honey, an ideal place for them to dwell as a distinct people unto the Lord and dwelling with the Lord in their midst. But the end of the story about to possess Canaan, that is not the first time that God had provided for his people an ideal place. God had graciously provided before in Eden. But his people misused his gifts. His people abused his trust, and they turned their backs on him. 
Now back to Genesis 1.1. There it declares that God is. It declares that God created time and space and everything. Verse 2 and following is the description of how God prepared a place for his people to dwell. So in this message, we're going to look at how God prepared this place for his people. But before we dive in, I want to set some expectations. We have to approach the scriptures seeking to discern what God intends for us to know. So Genesis is both historical and theological, but it's not a science book. And there are some things that Genesis does not seek to answer. Genesis does not seek to answer the, pro- the process of creation beyond the fact that God made everything out of nothing. It doesn't give us all of the fine details. Genesis does not give us the age of the earth or the cosmos. It doesn't say that specifically. Genesis doesn't tell us what happened to the dinosaurs. But because Genesis is scripture, we must take it literally. I am going to take it literally. But at the same time, we've got to be careful not to read into the text what is not there And I know this from my study and and from years past, that some of the emphasis that others have placed on these first verses in the Bible have entirely missed the point of what the divine author is telling us. So, as we give our focus this morning to verses 2 through 25, I want us to notice this. And here's kind of a, a unifying statement that I came up with. God determines potential by sending his spirit for our good. God determines potential by sending his spirit for our good. I'll break that down. First of all, God determines potential. Uh, When I was a kid, my, my dad bought a piece of property and told us that we'd be moving there. Well, we went to look at that property. There was no building. It was a little over an acre, but it was humanly uninhabitable unless we wanted to live in a tent. That wouldn't work so well in the Ontario winter. There was no shelter. But little by little, day by day, that property was transformed. There was grading, then a hole in the ground, then a foundation, then framing, a roof. Of course, you get it. It's not uncommon in this city. It's constantly happening all around us. My father assigned that property potential. The unformed property was transformed into a place for my mom and dad and us three boys to live. Now, God created everything, but part of his creation needed to be specifically prepared for human habitation. Verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Now, When reading this verse, we need to understand what the writer means by earth. And it's easy to impose our own ideas of what that is. So there's a Hebrew word, Eretz, that's earth. But but in the word Eretz, there's a range of meanings as used in Scripture. It could mean the globe. Or it could simply mean that which is opposed to heaven. There's heaven, then there's the earth. It could refer to the inhabitants It could refer to a specific land. 
It could refer to a country, a territory, a piece of ground, the surface of a ground, the soil. So as you see, there's a range of possibilities in the very word Eretz. So I think you can see by now that, that translators have to make an interpretive decision in the context based on what they believe. And it's, of course, a collective belief. That interpretive decision has everything to do with how we understand this verse. And so for now, I'm going to simply say that I believe the intent for us is to understand that the writer, Moses, inspired by God, intends for us to think of Eretz as land. Stated this way, the land was without form and void. Now, why was it so? Why was the land without form and void? Formless and void in Hebrew, uh, it, it kind of rhymes. And you, can, you can say these over and over again. Tohu and bohu. Formless and void. Tohu, bohu. So why was the land tohu and bohu? And why was there darkness over the land? Now, I acknowledge that some here perhaps are thinking what has been theorized by some, that there is this gap between verses 1 and 2, that God created everything, but then evil came in and corrupted the creation by the fall of Lucifer, by the devil. So then God needed to fix it. But I really don't think that fits theologically. In fact, at this point, we haven't even been introduced to the idea of sin Chapter 3, the soil is cursed because of Adam's sin. So, so here in verse 2, formless and void, and I'm going to say it, formless and void need not be a moral statement. It's just a state of is. What is? So the question I think this is answering is, the way this is right now, is the land suitable? Is it ideal for human habitation and thriving? Is it a good place for him to live? The answer is no, not yet. Yes, God created everything out of nothing, but everything else specific to the dwelling place of man with God, we are told in the scriptures, is that what God did was mold and form and conform his own raw material into other things, better things for his own purposes. Now, something can be formless and void in the present because it had a different purpose earlier and that it's going to be repurposed. So the land that my father bought for our house used to be part of a farm. It was perfectly suited for the livestock to graze. But when he bought it, he wanted us to live there. It needed to be repurposed. Now... I understand that even as I'm um, laying it out this way, some are perhaps thinking, isn't God diminished somehow to say that he created things for one purpose that we don't know about, a different purpose earlier, and that he determined to repurpose that? Is that diminish God? I, I don't think so. See, it's the question we might ask around why God didn't make... So the question we might ask about why God didn't make the land inhabitable in the first place, I think is a similar question that we might ask as to why God um, said in uh, verse 3, let there be light. 
He created everything. Everything. So the planets were there. The sun was there. But he said, let there be light. But he did it for the sake of his land. The sun was created when he made the heavens and the earth, was it not? And yet here he, de he declares light for a specific purpose. Then in verse, verse 14, he assigns lights in the heavens, stars. He had already made them, moon, sun. For the purpose of marking days and seasons, night from day. He had already declared the day in verse 5. Then in verse 24, he caused the earth, he caused the earth to bring forth living creatures. He didn't just call them into existence. He caused the earth to bring them into existence. And I think at the pinnacle of this, this argument here, chapter 2, verse 7, how did the Lord form the man? He didn't speak him into existence. He grabbed up dirt, dust of the ground. He formed him into a man, and he gave him a name, Adam, which sounds like the Hebrew word for soil. He didn't speak Eve into existence. He caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep. He took a rib. He made a wife. There is a theological purpose in the way that God prepared his creation for his people. And I think we're meant to understand that God can take anything that he has made, and that's everything, and use it for whatever he wants. To use it for one thing and then change what it's for and use it for something else. Listen, didn't Jesus say, Matthew 3, 9, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. God wants children for Abraham. He can call some stones to be them. That's not hyperbole. God took what he made in verse 1 and out of it, he formed, he fashioned a suitable dwelling place for man to live. Now, in this big picture, there's certainly another reason for something to be formless and void and without light, and that is human sin. That's not the case, I believe, in verse 2, but it is the case in other parts. As I said, the Pentateuch is the story of God preparing a place for his people to dwell with him, but man sinned and was banned from Eden, Right? And from Eden to the end of Deuteronomy, God is once again preparing a people, once again to possess a land, an ideal land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they would be given that land again, Canaan, and they would lose it because of disobedience. After the, or during the exile, notice how the prophet Jeremiah describes the land once the Israelites have been exiled to Babylon. Listen to this, Jeremiah 4, 23 through 26. I looked on the earth. That's that word Eretz. And I don't take it that he means the entire globe. I looked on the earth. And behold, it was without form, Tohu. And void, Bohu. And to the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and all of its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. 
the land became formless, without form and void because of human sin. What was once an ideal place was corrupted. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, what, what God does with land for his people to dwell, he also does with you and me. Created by God, we are born into this world and we are, in a sense, spiritually formless and void because we carry in ourselves the curse of our forefather, Adam. David, in his great confession, Psalm 51.5 says, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. But the good news is that God does not leave us unformed, does he? He loves us and he has proved that love in his son Jesus. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. If God has set his love on you, he has assigned potential to you. You don't have the potential within you, but he assigned it to you. Not because you're worthy, but because simply you were created to know him. God determines, secondly, God determines potential by sending his spirit, by sending his spirit. Uh, when I was, uh, I guess, 21 years old, I was uh, studying at Laurentian University in northern Ontario. I had a call from my mom. Um, and my, my dad had already had cancer surgery once, um, about a year and a half earlier. And she said, your dad's in the hospital. And um, she didn't say it directly. She just wanted me to know. But I took from the phone call, you need to come home. Now, I dropped everything and went. It wasn't a heroic thing. I, I went to be with my dad uh, in his last week, six weeks of life. And uh, I sat by the bedside in the hospital. But I was present. I needed to be present. And I think my mother appreciated that I was present there. Well... The creation narrative here in Genesis 1 reveals that God created everything. But if we, looked, if we look at how, how the land was prepared for the people of God to dwell with God, we see that he became present by sending his spirit. It says in the text, the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Well, how is the spirit of God hover and why do we even need to know this? You think about it. But here's what I take. Somehow, God, who is outside of creation, spoke the thing into existence and formed this land, or was about to form a land. In some sense, he enters into it. The Spirit of God is hovering, brooding over the face of the deep. He is present in his creation. Now, the Hebrew word for spirit, ruach, 
Spirit of God, the Ruach, the wind of God, was personally involved in preparing the place for God's people to dwell with him. God isn't sitting out there hurling out commands. He is deeply involved in his creation. That was God's intention, to be deeply involved with his creation and to be deeply involved with his people. The Spirit of God was there before the people of God. And the Spirit of God remained with the people of God. In chapter 3, verse 8, so looking ahead a little bit, and we'll get to this in weeks ahead, after Adam and Eve had sinned by, by taking the forbidden, forbidden fruit, you know the story, we learned that they heard the sound of the Lord God, get this, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. He was present with them. God was dwelling with Adam and Eve. He was walking with them. Incidentally, and I don't know if this means anything, but the word for cool in the day, cool of the day, is also the word ruach, the word for spirit. Later, Exodus, when the tabernacle was completed and erected and Moses had finished that work, what do we read there in Exodus 40? Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The Spirit of God has been present with the people of God. God determines the potential, the worthwhileness of something by sending His Spirit. And again, what was the purpose of that tabernacle? It was for the people of God to know that God dwelled with them and that their sins could be covered. So in the same way that the Spirit of God is intimately involved in creation, the Spirit of God is likewise intimately involved in new creation. Did I say that twice? In the way that the Spirit of God was involved in creation, the Spirit of God is intimately involved in new creation. The people of God are marked by the Spirit of God breathing spiritual life into us. In John chapter 3, that classic passage where he is interacting with Nicodemus, ask, Nicodemus asking how, how he can have eternal life. And Jesus answered, John 3, 5 to 8, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind, ruach, pneuma, blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. The people of God, born anew by the Spirit of God, are now indwelt by that same Spirit to empower them. And this is true for each of us who are in Christ today. Romans 8, 11 says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. God saw you formless and void, unformed, assigned potential to you, and sent his spirit 
And in the same way that he prepared a people, prepared for his people a place to live, the Spirit of God comes and prepares in you a place for God to dwell with you. Well, God determines potential by sending his Spirit for our good. For our good. Now, the most charitable thing I can say about our political process, and it's been rather tumultuous lately, the most charitable thing I can say is that those who are seeking power, I believe, are seeking the best for the most people. Maybe there's some, and maybe a lot, that are acting selfishly, but, but I think in general, they seek the best for most people with that power. And the speeches that they make and the policy plans that their surrogates communicate present their own ideal vision. But we know it because those elected leaders are flawed humans. They rarely find agreement on all sides. And what some in power call good, others see as abominable. They have a range of ideas, climate policy, employment, wage standards, foreign military involvement, the right to life, religious freedom, trade policy, immigration policy, and you know what all of this stuff is. All these politicians have some vision of good, but rarely do they land on anything that is universally acknowledged as so. As the one who rules over all creation, God has both the vision and the power for good. And he demonstrates this in the creation story. I want to I want you to look at what he does in this literal six-day period, verses 3 through 25. God, made, God called the light for a purpose, for the sake of the land. And he said the light was good. That's the first day. On the third day, God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God said what? It was good. Then he brought forth vegetation on that same day, plants, fruit-bearing trees. That was good. Then on the fourth day, God set in the expanse of the heavens to give light to the earth, to rule over the day and the night, to separate light from the darkness. God said, that's good. The fifth day, God created sea creatures, every living creature that moves, and birds too, according to his kind. And God said, that's good. That was the fifth day. On the sixth day, God made beasts of the earth according to their kinds and livestock, everything that creeps on the ground, and included he made man. And God said, it's good. Now I take it that what we're to understand, this kind of good was not a moral good. Light and sea creatures and the animals and livestock could not have the intention to either evil or good. And by good, I don't even think God was indicating that it was aesthetically good. That is to say, pleasing to the eye, though it most certainly was pleasing to the eye of God because he made it. But I believe the sense that it was good, that it was good for man to dwell in it. It was good for man to thrive. It was good for him to have an ideal place for his people to live in fellowship with him. It was good for that. And I want to... And the reason I say that is, is because as I was studying this, and one, one particular author helped me see this, notice that God did not say where God did not say it was good. And that was the second day. 
the expanse in the midst of the waters, separating the waters from the waters. God made the expanse, separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. Separating the waters. God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. Now, it's not that it wasn't good. But I believe it wasn't really relevant to the thriving of man. It was part of the creation story. It happened on the second day. Literal day. So it was integral to God's creation. But it didn't, maybe just didn't contribute to human flourishing. So in six days, God took what was unformed and divinely repurposed it and made an ideal dwelling for his people. And we know it didn't last long, did it? Now we're going to get to that in weeks ahead. But man sinned. Adam and Eve sinned. They corrupted the good gifts that he had given. And paradise was lost. But you know, even, even in the curse... God worked for the good of his people. You can see the, what happens in the curse in Genesis chapter 3, but I love how Milton in his epic poem opens. He says this, of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe. With the loss of Eden... Till one greater man restore us and regain the blissful seat. That's not scripture, but it's, it's pretty good. It's theologically really sound. God gives us what is good. And even though, brothers and sisters, we have corrupted it, he takes the mess that we make and he ultimately works for us to regain the blissful seat, as Milton says, the good land, that place where we will once again dwell with God. Now, if you're a child of God today, take to heart that God is working. So that's through sadness or joy. It is through ease or suffering. And amazingly, yes, and amazingly, through your own rebellion and repentance just like he did for Adam and Eve. God is for your eternal good. He wants for you, as Milton describes, that blissful seat. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, 28, a very familiar and often memorized passage, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now, we know this, don't we? All of human history is the story of man seeking good. We are trying to get back to the garden. The problem is that if we don't look to God, if we don't look to God who knows how to give what is good, we end up on the path of destruction. And that is the story for so many. Listen, listen to the, the, the Edenic but desperately misguided longing in, some of you older will be familiar with this song written by Joni Mitchell. It was covered by Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Listen, it's called Woodstock. Well, I came upon a child of God. He was walking along the road. And I asked him, tell me, where are you going? 
And this he told me. Said, I'm going down to Yazger's farm. Gonna join in a rock and roll band. Gotta get back to the land. Set my soul free. We are stardust. We are golden. We are billion-year-old carbon. And we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. It's an Edenic longing, but so misguided. We all want our souls set free, don't we? We all want to get back to the garden, but we're not going to find it at Yasger's farm or in a rock and roll band or in the next political party or in a vaccine or in your video going viral or a job success or your kid getting a scholarship to a fancy college. The only way that we will get back to the garden is as Milton described through one greater man and that man is Jesus the Christ the God man the word who was in the very beginning with God and who is God John 1 1 the one through whose word the land was prepared he lived among us he took the divine consequence for my sin and yours at the cross he died he was buried in the tomb and rose again on the third day Adam and Eve had Eden they rebelled against God and they lost it The Israelites were given it again, Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey, but they lost it again because of their idolatry. Yet, yet, God still promised to do good for them in spite of their failures. Joel 2.25, he said, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. God takes credit for the destruction the judgment. And the one who would restore the years that the locusts had eaten? Jesus. He would be the one to fulfill that promise forever. He told his disciples, and he is telling us today, that he is for our eternal good. And we will once again dwell with God in an ideal land, never again to lose it. Listen to what he said to his disciples. Let not your hearts Be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. You're a child of God today. There is a place that is prepared for you by the Lord Jesus Himself where we will dwell with Him forever. And the hope that was there when Eden was lost of a seed, a child, that hope is Jesus Himself. He had his heel bruised so that you and I would not have to suffer the consequence of our own rebellion. If we were in the garden like Adam and Eve, we would lose it just like they did. And if we were the Israelites who had possessed Canaan, we would, like them, turn to rebellion and idols and we'd lose it.
But because of Christ, we have a good land promised to us. And brothers and sisters, we hold on to that hope in Jesus Christ, don't we? And that's the hope that we as a church sitting here in this part of the community, they're all looking for Eden in their own ways. We have the message that can get them back to the garden. Not through worldly means, but by looking to Christ himself. And so we proclaim him every time we come together. And I hope that as you leave this place and interact with people in the week, that on your mind and on your lips is the very word that they need to hear. But the way back to that glorious land by faith in Christ himself. And we who belong to Jesus, knowing that God had already determined our potential, seeing us as formless and void, spiritually wastelands with no light in our lives, he sent his spirit to awaken us to our desperate need for Jesus as Savior. And because of the spirit, we see on the cross there crucified the Son of God bearing all of our sin and shame. And as the Spirit takes up residence in us, developing in us and forming us into a suitable dwelling in effect for the very Spirit of God, to equip us for the day when joined with all of the people of God, we are in the very presence of Almighty God. Between now and then, we can have every confidence, as the Apostle Paul says in Philippians, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That's our hope. That is Genesis 1, the creation story. It's not about, not primarily about the stuff. It's primarily about us getting to dwell with God. I trust that that's your hope that that's your confidence today, that indeed you know because of the Spirit that you will dwell with God someday. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for the example that Adam and Eve provide for us. We're grateful that your Spirit assigns to us being unformed as we are worth and value, not because of anything in us, but simply because you set your love on on us. You've determined potential, you sent your spirit, and you are working for our good to bring us to that place, that eternal home with you, where we will delight in your presence forever. Hold us hopeful and working for that day. For the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen.